This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. It's our last program of 2022. We really enjoyed putting together our year in review program for Wednesday's show, but today is our regular review of all the important news for this past week. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel. Here in the studio, we have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Hello. We start in Israel, which officially has a new government, Benjamin Netanyahu, reclaimed control of the country. And to get an idea of what to expect from him and his government in the time ahead, we'll look to Mihailo Zekic. Benjamin Netanyahu was sworn in as Israel's prime minister yesterday. This is the third time uh, he's come back from uh, not being in office, or at least I guess in the first time he wasn't in office to begin with. But uh, the point is, this is the third time he was voted in uh, in an election he wasn't an incumbent in. So I guess this makes him the Middle East's uh, ultimate comeback kid. He uh, lost power in 2021 to uh, Naftali Bennett and uh, Yair Lapid, who had since governed the country. And so in this about year and a half stint, We've uh, gotten a look at what Israel without Netanyahu looks like, which is, considering how long he's been in politics, over 15 years, is something Israel hasn't seen in a while. And with this latest election, um, Israel, which happened in uh, early November, uh, but through coalition negotiations only got settled now, Israel basically said they saw what Israel without Netanyahu looks like and they don't like what they see. So now that Netanyahu's back in power, he has a comfortable majority of 64 seats in his coalition out of 120. And so his government's a lot less shaky than what his previous coalitions were. And so he can rule Israel for as long as late 2025 if he wants to, assuming he doesn't call an early election or maybe there's some uh, problems within the coalition or something like that. So this is the most secure power base uh Netanyahu's had for a long time for his opposition's uh, case, uh, Yair Lapid, his party uh, gained votes, but uh, Yamina, which is the bloc that Naftali Bennett ran under, uh, didn't get a single seat in the Knesset. So I think that goes to show at the very least what the Israeli public's thinking of him right now. And so, yeah, with uh, in the near future, we could expect a bit more of the same with Netanyahu, but also a little bit more different as he has new coalition partners this time. Well, it's, of course, it's still in the early days, so we'll just have to wait and see what exactly they do. Yeah, well, talk to us about uh, the new coalition partners. Many of the, the people who've joined his coalition he's worked with in the past, one that he hasn't is uh, the Religious Zionism Party. Tell us about that. Yeah, so religious Zionism is uh, one of two parties that uh, Netanyahu hasn't really worked with in the past before. Uh, religious Zionism is a bigger one. And if you look at what the mainstream media is saying they uh, about this new coalition, they're calling it uh, Israel's most right-wing government in its history, a far-right government, an extreme-right government at this point. People overuse the term far right so much that they have to invent a new term to describe what they don't like. And it has been in the 
fringe of uh, Israeli politics for a while. They do have some positions that are further to the right than, say, Likud, uh, Netanyahu's party. But at the same time, a lot of what they're asking for includes demands that the Israeli right has wanted for a long time. It's just nobody's been brave enough to implement them. They are one of the parties in Israel. There's a few of them that cater to, among others, Orthodox Jews. And uh, they want to start putting in uh, some of, uh, I won't say uh, religious government, but a government that's more reflective of what Orthodox Jews want, which usually reflects religious policy. For example, they want to put in a law that uh, businesses, if serving a client, uh, would violate the religious beliefs, that businesses could have an opt-out from that, similar to, say, the uh, the birthday cake debate in the United States, where, where if Christian bakers should be allowed to make uh, cake, uh, cake supporting gay marriage or not. They want to uh, ramp up Israeli settlement construction in the West Bank, and the coalition negotiations even uh, had a vague um, affirmation that annexation of the West Bank is on its agenda, though the way it's worded, uh, who knows if that's actually going to be a reality or not. And they also want to put in more mechanisms for the Knesset to have oversight over Israel's Supreme Court. Israel's Supreme Court is a bit notorious for being quite activist and has limited democratic oversight. A lot of people are saying that this is a hostile takeover of uh, the judicial system or whatever. But uh, again, a lot of um, right-wingers in Israel, Israeli politics, including within Netanyahu's own party, Likud, have been wanting these kinds of things for years. But they were afraid of being branded far-right, being branded um, extremists, etc. But... With these new parties coming in, uh, part of part of the deal of them supporting Netanyahu was going forward with these uh, programs. So in one sense, Netanyahu makes these new uh, parties happy, and in the other sense, he gets to go ahead with these projects. Some of the some of them he wants, but he doesn't get the full blame for them. He can uh, say, "Well, this is part of our coalition agreement, and whatnot." And so, in a sense, it's more politically viable for him than if he went ahead with them normally. You mentioned several things that uh, are th this religious party in particular is driving. Any other uh, sense of what we can expect from his government? I think probably one of the biggest uh, questions on people's minds is Israeli security, especially in light of ramped up terrorist ac activity in recent months. Benjamin Netanyahu is kind of the, uh, the answer to that, no? That's what a lot of Israelis think. I mean, obviously, Israel's had to suffer with terror attacks and attacks from its neighbor, uh, Arab neighbors for as long as it's been a country. Um, but with during the Bennett-Lapid government, you saw not only did you see a lot more uh, bold, shall we say, terror attacks, um, rioters getting a, a lot more aggressive with the police, for example, but you also saw the Israeli government afraid to crack down on the protests. The last coalition had a party called Ram within it. It's actually an Arab party that has some uh, Islamist ties. And in order to not offend Ram and its Arab backers, uh, the Israeli government took a more restrained approach to terrorism, which, of course, encouraged the terrorists. Add to that, uh, earlier this year, you had the brief war with Gaza. You have... Um, the Biden administration in Washington negotiating with uh, the Iranians on a nuclear deal, which Yair Lapid opposed, but a lot of people saw he didn't really take that hard of a line against the Americans to not let that happen. 
Uh, Netanyahu is a much more experienced politician in this regard with uh, not just combating terrorism, but also working his way with uh, Israel's more aggressive neighbors. And with uh, these new religious parties that are brought in, instead of having to cater, say, to a party like Ram, now uh, Netanyahu's government is going to have to cater to the more hardline religious Jews who are not going to be happy if the terrorists are given a free pass. Uh, or anything like that. So even just for his political survival's sake, we can expect Netanyahu and his new government to start cracking down a little bit more on terrorism, creating a more secure Israel. And in all likelihood, the agitators uh, will know this, and they'll know that they won't get as much of a free pass. And while they certainly don't like Netanyahu, they might be a bit more afraid to cross his uh, line than, say, they would Yair Lapid. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, we did talk about uh, just what a miraculous uh, comeback this has been in Wednesday's program when we were talking about the, the biggest news stories of 2022 and how this might uh, presage a similar uh, comeback in the United States. We have an article in our January edition of The Trumpet, BB is Back. I would encourage you to read that. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, if you want more information about that and why we consider this so prophetically significant. Thank you for that, Mr. Zekich. Tensions are heating up in the Balkans, a couple of developments in this war-torn region this past week, and there's fear that a new war could be approaching. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, welcome to one of the most interesting stories involving driver's licenses, I guess, that you will see in the uh, in the news or, or at least... Uh, car registrations there's been a um, kind of whole flare-up where like you said people are talking about war uh that basically gets back to uh, an argument about cars and valid who which where you register cars and driver's licenses and and this kind of thing so as i think everyone knows Kosovo broke away from Serbia or or NATO uh, forced uh, Serbia to to let Kosovo go away. Uh, But you've still got a lot of Serbs in some regions of Kosovo and they would like to be part of Serbia. And since the breakaway, they have been able to to get away with maintaining some links uh, with Serbia and what's been happening more recently is that Serbia has been cracking down on some of those links. So they've been cracking down on the use of uh, driver's licenses offer, uh, issued from Serbia being used in Serb majority areas. And so Serbian judges and policemen, they resigned en masse. Uh, you had a December 10th, the Serbian policeman was arrested. There's been uh Kosovar authorities trying to come into these Serbian regions to to enforce these kind of rules. When and then the Serbs have responded by um, putting up roadblocks, and then this has escalated. There have been skirmishes at these robot uh, robots roadblocks. There was an attack on a some, a member of a European Union force with a stun gun. Uh, there were shots fired close to a NATO patrol on Christmas Day. Uh, so uh, it's it's something that you know it's a small story that ties into very long-standing uh, grievances and you know legitimate grievances that go well beyond the size of the story and and it's something that then has escalated now uh, into at least shots fired 
uh, and the fear is that it could go further. Russia has historic ties to this area, and uh, there are some who are looking at the uh, unrest in the Balkans as an opportunity for Russia to create problems for Europe in response to their help in the Ukraine war. Can you just uh, describe what's what uh, is at stake there? Right. This is because this is all happening right now, where there's this war in Ukraine. Uh, this makes it this is what I think has got people especially concerned. So the Serbs historically have been very close allies to to Russia. There's a strong religious connection in terms of the Russian Orthodox Church. This is something, you know, we're talking going back hundreds of years of Russia as the protectors of the, of, of the Serbs. And then even with the wars and the breakup of Yugoslavia and NATO bombing Belgrade and all of those things, uh, Russia was at least sympathetic to, to, to Serbia and uh, supporting their cause with rhetoric, if, if nothing else. So there's a fear that Russia could use this, that if, the, if Russia encourages the Serbs uh, or encourages violence, they could use this to try and open up another front in terms of pressuring Europe, pressuring uh, the United States. There's, uh, at least for some countries in Europe and certainly from the United States, they're making Russia's job in Ukraine, or they're making Russia's war in Ukraine harder. They're backing uh, Ukraine with weapons. This is a way for Russia to raise the stakes and to raise the cost. Uh, you know, okay, uh, Europe, okay, the West, you want to you want to mess with us? Well, we can. Yes, we can block energy. We can make we can bring violence to this other part of Europe, and that violence is going to spill over into the other countries around there. Uh, this is going to create more refugees. This is going to create you know, just more chaos in general. You see the same kind of trend in, in Vladimir Putin making a, a phone call to the leader of Cuba this week. Again, raising the ante, there's a message there to you, the United States. Okay, you want to play in our backyard? Well, we can play in your backyard. Uh, and so, yeah, it's just that that's, I think, this fear of Russia is a big part of why uh, why there's worries that this could escalate. Another big story out of the Balkans this past week was uh, Croatia joining the Eurozone. Tell us about that. Yes, or a, a big story of the next week. They're joining on Sunday they will officially join the Eurozone and they will officially join the Schengen area. So yeah, this is uh, them becoming right at the heart and core of the European Union. Now, they will now be able to travel around the European Union without a passport. Once you're in the EU, you'll be able to go to Croatia without crossing any uh, real type of border using the common currency. I mean, really, we talk about this region uh, probably more than most news sources because this is an area where Bible prophecy really comes alive. We have a whole booklet on this area, Germany's conquest of the Balkans. Uh, and Simon's got an article uh, that we'll probably have up on Monday, uh, Croatia enters Schengen area, Eurozone, that goes through some of the history that makes this so significant that uh, Germany started the war in Yugoslavia that broke up that country into lots of different countries. Croatia is a historic German ally that uh, with uh, even with the modern Croatian government with kind of very worrying neo-Nazi links, Germany made this happen. And Croatia joining the Eurozone uh, and joining Schengen, it really is a culmination of that conquest, uh, a, a real milestone in terms of Germany coming in, taking over that area. And now it's not really on the borders of Europe anymore. It is the heart of Europe. So 
you know, we watch we watch this region because it shows Germany's conquest. You can then learn a lot watching this interaction between Europe and Russia and you know, fear of Russia driving Europe to unite. That's a key trend that we've talked about a lot on this show. That's something Mr. Flurry really identified as a key trend to watch from uh, uh, from what's going on in Ukraine. So Russia potentially getting involved in the Balkans is another part of that story. So uh, so many different strands of Bible prophecy unfolding, but uh, it's, a, it's a conquest by Germany and the potential of a, of a pushback maybe by Russia. Well, it seems like uh, we could very well be hearing more headlines and more important news coming out of the Balkans uh, very soon. We will definitely keep our eyes on that. As you say, we've got a lot of uh, information in our literature about this. Gerald Flurry has been focusing on this area from the very beginning. We do have his booklet, Germany's Conquest of the Balkans, in our literature library. You can go check that out, and we have uh, those couple of articles that we'll link to in the show notes about these specific incidents that happened this past week and that will be happening on Sunday. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. A new report warns that China's aggressive activity in the world's seaports and oceans gives it a dangerous ability to disrupt global trade. For this story, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, this new report by Belgium's Royal Higher Institute for Defense shows that China's militarization of civilian vessels and its takeover of ports around the world and just its overall dominance of global shipping would enable it to actually choke international commerce if war were to break out. So this report focuses first on China's militarization of civilian vessels. And this is something that we've uh, spoken about in the past regarding China's so-called fisherman navy and just the way civilian ships have long been used in kind of a makeshift way to reinforce Coast Guard and military fleets. But now there are actually official policies in place that the Chinese Communist Party has enacted that basically require all ships, including those built for shipping or fishing or anything like that, to be built to military specifications. Mm -hmm. So this means making them capable of transporting People's Liberation Army troops and also tanks and amphibious craft for those that are large enough. So these are very telling policies. And it's even more significant when you consider that China now builds 41% of all vessels. So that makes it, you know, the world's largest shipbuilder. And it shows that China is actively preparing for a time when all of its thousands of ships could suddenly be put into military service. And then this uh, new report also shows that China already controls nearly a third of all maritime trade, including 12% of all crude oil tankers that are Chinese flagged, and then 13% of total liquefied natural gas shipments, and then 18% of all container transports. So these, these numbers represent thousands of ships, and it shows that it is a vast amount of power that China has accrued over global shipping. And this has become just a major component of China's national power. So the, as China is uh, enacting this policy, it's quite extraordinary. All, all vessels have to be to military specifications. This definitely puts uh, their, their, their clear aim on display for everyone. This is happening at the same time. This was also discussed in this report that you have China taking over ports 
all over the world. How does that factor in? Yes, that's a that's a huge part of this. At the exact same time, you have China boosting its holdings over key ports all around the globe. The, uh, the Chinese Communist Party accomplishes this through state-owned companies such as Costco and also the China Merchants Group and the state-influenced C.K. Hutchison Holdings Limited. Through these companies, the Chinese now have considerable influence over ports in Hamburg, Germany, Piraeus, Greece, Le Havre in France, also uh, Antwerp, Belgium, Felixstowe, Britain, uh, Port Obok in Djibouti, Gwadar in Pakistan, the Suez Canal, the Panama Canal, you know, the list goes on and on. China has major stakes in these locations, and many people in these various nations have voiced you know, concern about China's growing power over their vital ports. But no one is apparently concerned enough to actually prevent this Chinese takeover. And so China just keeps on tightening its grip on these vital ports more and more. And that does position China as a literal gatekeeper, as some of these places, able to allow or block whoever it wants to. So tell us about uh, how this factors into biblical prophecy. Sure, yes. This, uh, this is a report from the Belgian Royal Higher Institute for Defense, as I mentioned. That's a European institute. So, of course, the main conclusion uh, of this author is about Europe's vulnerability. One statement toward the end says, It is crucial for Europe's security and prosperity to critically evaluate this vulnerability to China. But Bible prophecy shows that it's actually the United States and Britain as well that will actually be the main victims of China's tightening grip over global shipping. And the prophecies show that Europe will actually ally with China against the English-speaking nations. Isaiah chapter 23 is uh, one of the main chapters about this massive trade block that will be formed in the future. And it shows that it will be led by China and Europe. The chapter uses ancient names referring to both China and Europe here. And then the scriptures also show that this trade block will actually be used to block the U.S. and the U.K. out of world trade and even to besiege them. Trumpet editor-in-chief has written about this in his book, Isaiah's End Time Vision. He writes, The Bible contains many prophecies of that European power attacking America and many other prophecies of America being besieged. This is why Isaiah's prophecy of an end-time mart of nations that includes both European and Asian powers is so intriguing, and why the trend of collusion between these two great economic blocks is worth watching. So I think in light of that, it's it's plain to see just really how significant it is to be watching China's militarization of civilian vessels and its takeover of ports and its growing just, you know, overall dominance of global shipping. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Jacques. Now to America. More Twitter files revelations were published this week. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, the Twitter files just keep coming and coming. We got our latest batch, Twitter files part 10 on Monday, which was a, a 40 tweet thread released by investigative journalist David Zweig called How Twitter Rigged the COVID Debate. And while previous Twitter file batches had mostly focused on the nuts and bolts about how the CIA and the FBI and some of these other agencies were colluding to uh, to control the Twitter narrative, uh, this one focuses a little bit more on uh, on what type of information they were trying to censor. Uh, some of the earlier files focused on the um, the Hunter Biden laptop, but this really focuses on the uh, the COVID 
the COVID information saying actually uh, the the deep state under both uh, the Trump administration and the Biden administration uh, pressured Twitter and other social media platforms to uh, to basically censor any <laughs> uh, miss what they would rule as misinformation about uh, COVID. They said in particular after Biden took over, they really stepped up their their game to try to either flag or eliminate any uh, any tweets about COVID-19 that the uh, the government didn't agree with, uh, even if they came from um, a medical expert. I think there's some of these 40 tweets uh, in this Twitter file batch talks about like a Dr. Martin Kaldorf, who's the Harvard Medical School epidemiologist, who's a so very, very lettered man who had had several tweets about some of the... Uh, uh, COVID-19 and about how some of the ways the government was mishandling that that got flagged uh, under this program. So uh, definitely deep levels of collusion between uh, the government and Twitter over the COVID debate. And uh, and the Monday release is probably not the last one. Uh, Elon Musk has been hinting for a couple weeks now that he's got more uh, he said he's he said he's changed his Elon Musk has he said he's changed his pronouns to prosecute Fauci. Uh, yeah. So uh, t- well, tell us about this. Uh, there was more information that came out about uh, he seems to be kind of teasing that he's got more information on Fauci. He talked about that this week. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's uh, actually if you follow his Twitter <laughs> account, he's already this is not an, an official Twitter file, but he's already revealed that there was a Fauci fan club at Twitter. It was like a Substack thread between um, between Twitter employees, basically the people who are making these decisions about what COVID uh, what COVID things to flag. Uh, we're, we're all fawning over Anthony Fauci, so you could definitely see that the the people who are censoring the misinformation are definitely hardcore uh, Fauci fans. And then another one that this actually wasn't a Twitter file or even from Twitter. This was just good Wikipedia research that is true, uh, where he, he found out, the, and Elon Musk tweeted this this week, actually the head of the Department of Bioethics at the National Institute uh, for Health and Clinical Services uh, is basically a government position that's in charge of like ethics, bioethics, making sure people like Anthony Fauci uh, – follow or make ethical decisions that's christine grady who's kept her maiden name but it's actually fauci's wife Mm -hmm. so uh we did that story uh earlier this year late last year about the running on covid money about just all the uh all these people who work for the media and the pharmaceutical companies and the government and they're all getting money from each other so there's just all this bias in here uh this is another big one that they'd come up as they said basically the way uh the way musk phrased it he tweeted this on uh, december 28th he said almost no one seems to realize that the head of bioethics at the nih the person who's supposed to make sure that fauci behaves ethically is fauci's wife uh and so, uh, no conflict of interest. No cause of those. Yeah, yeah, huge, <laughs> huge conflict of interest. Uh, huge conflict of interest here. And then um, the other thing Musk had done this week is he'd he'd pinned a year old article, uh, and I think that might be a good indication that he's got more to say. The fact that he's going back through articles that aren't recent but are, are even a year old, talking about um, the articles talking about a 
2012 paper Fauci wrote saying that like, well, even if gain of function research causes a pandemic, it's worth the risk. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, and I believe, uh, I believe our appendix C was the coronavirus engineered and um, our editor-in-chief's America Under Attack booklet cites that same study, or if not, a very similar one. Uh, but basically proving that, like, for a decade, uh, Fauci's known that he's been doing gain-of-function research in China that could cause a pandemic and said that, like, well, if it, it does, it's worth the risk because it will give us the technology we need to make these vaccines um, those are the type of decisions the head of bioethics would should probably be flagging mm -hmm. if, um, like I said, they weren't married to each other, literally and figuratively. But it's well, we do have a major feature story from Stephen Flurry in our uh, trumpet edition that just went up online this last week. It's called Dark Secrets Exposed. And it talks about just how extraordinary all of the revelations that we are receiving uh, not just at Twitter, but that's a, a huge part of it, but in many other areas as well. He's been talking about this on the Trumpet Daily Radio Show this week, and uh, it is quite extraordinary. Uh, God says that all of the secret things are going to be revealed. There's a lot of secret things that are being exposed right now. Uh, it's an excellent article. I suspect that we're going to be talking about more Twitter files next week. That's You can... Uh, uh, let me know if I was right on that. We'll find out next week. But thank you for that, Mr. Miller. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, a grisly mass shooting in Paris, another massive missile strike in Ukraine, high-level talks between Turkey and Syria, and a good decision from America's Supreme Court. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. A terrible incident in Paris highlights the continuing tensions between Europeans and their growing immigrant population. To learn about this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, this is a story that actually unfolded just before we recorded the show this time last week, and I very nearly switched one of my items to, to talk about it. I'm glad I didn't because we didn't really have the full picture of, of what was happening then we have a better picture now so there were uh, three people killed and another three wounded at a shooting at a kurdish cultural center in paris and we now know that the culprit was a 69 year old with a quote pathological hatred of foreigners he showed up with a sword or or a knife or something like that a few years ago uh, and attacked them uh, that was in, in 2018. He injured two men in, in that attack. So uh, a very extreme individual. And I think you know, this is an individual that did something incredibly evil. And um, I don't want to take away any of the guilt from him for doing that or justify his attack. Uh, but I think this story does show the... Uh, the growing tensions that you're starting to see in a lot of Europe. You know, when I was on this show this time last week, we were talking about uh, Muslim violence when Morocco went out of the World Cup. And we also mentioned all the car burnings that you would see on New Year's Eve. The uh, individual that carried out this attack, he lives in the uh, Paris suburb of Saint-Denis that has just become uh, uh, 
just well known for its migrant uh, uh, violence. And uh, you know, there they've got potentially 20% of the population is illegal immigrants in this particular suburb. So not, not immigrants in total, but illegal immigrants. Mm. You've then got large amounts of immigrants on top of that. Of those that are 18 years old and younger, 44% have at least one parent who was born outside of Europe. Uh, so this, this, this area has massive social tensions. There are kind of police no-go zones where the police fear to tread. Uh, in this area, there are extremists in this area and now you're starting to see more extremists on the other side uh, as kind of both sides drive each other to to more and more evil so this really has been a story as you mentioned that has been developing over many years and these kinds of attacks have been uh somewhat routine i i guess not it's not so much the the uh, Europeans that are attacking the migrants. It's tended to be terrorist attacks and other things that have happened against the European uh, native population. Uh, but it does, as you said, it does show this tension. And looking at this from the standpoint of Bible prophecy, this really is something that is worth watching closely. That's right. The Bible uh, really draws attention to this growing tension in terms of foreign policy. Daniel 11, we pretty much mention this every week where you've got uh, a keynote prophecy that says, you know, it's, it's at the time of the end when it's talking about. And uh, as we go through in our book, The King of the South, you can you can go and you can see who these different powers are. And the King of the South is referring to radical Islam uh, led by Iran. And this this talks about this radical Islamic power pushing at Europe, and then Europe eventually responding in an incredibly violent manner. I we saw, that's that's what we saw in microcosm last week, and uh, yes, it's going to. And then the Bible tells us, well, this is going to play out on the world stage. You also have other um, Bible passages that talk about a strong leader coming into Europe. You know, Europe res- society changing away from the more kind of open democratic society that we've seen and and you can see the these kind of tensions pushing society in that direction so uh, it ties into a number of critical bible trends and you can see bible prophecy unfolding in some of these tragic events we will have an article up next week uh, on this and that's uh, it's called man with a pathological hatred of migrants kills three in paris All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. Uh, More evidence of Russia ramping up its offensive in Ukraine this past week. To learn about this, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, this was just yesterday that Russia fired a barrage of missiles on Ukrainian cities and mostly at civilian targets in those cities. Initial reports said that it was more than 120 total missiles, but that was later revised down to 69 total missiles. So it's still just a massive strike. And Ukrainian air defense systems were able to stop the majority of these incoming missiles, but about 15 of them still got through and hit their targets, which were uh, components of energy infrastructure and water stations in Ukraine. Those have really become the main things that Russia targets with these kinds of attacks, because they've had a very hard time hitting Ukraine's military targets, 
And they figure that by taking out power and water, they can make many Ukrainian civilians just suffer as much as possible. And the, uh, the city of Lviv was particularly hard hit by this. About 90% of Lviv was left without power. So it, it took just a major blow to its grid there. There were no reported fatalities from this barrage of missiles, but three people were injured, including a 14-year-old girl. So it's, it's just more of Russia's terror tactics, more intentional strikes on civilians and civilian infrastructure for the purposes of just instilling terror in the hearts of the Ukrainian people. And I think that it shows that uh, even now that we're about 11 months into this war, it could still keep going for a long time and wreak a great deal more havoc on Ukraine. So if we look back over the last 11 months and we see the way that Russia has been prosecuting this, it, it does seem like what we saw this past week definitely uh, reflects an escalation in uh, the uh, willingness to use these kinds of terrorist type uh, actions. Uh, but maybe you could just talk about the, the scale of the suffering that we've seen in Ukraine over this period. Sure, yeah. There was actually a new report this week by the UN's Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights that just focused on civilian casualties so far in Ukraine. It's been a little bit difficult to pin down accurate data about those kinds of things, um, just since the war is still very much underway. But this new report says that since February 24th, at least 6,884 civilians have been killed by Russian forces, and another 11,000 have been injured. Um, now, this, of course, excludes military casualties. It only focuses on civilians. And the report notes that the actual numbers for both the dead and the injured are believed to be far higher than these figures. But these are just the, the ones that have been confirmed and corroborated with, you know, names and other information known about the victims. So we'll still have to wait for who knows how long to get more accurate total estimates. But even with these very conservative figures, there are 429 children who have been killed so far. So it's, you know, it's hard to quantify that kind of tragedy. And it shows that even if this war were to end tomorrow, there's already been just unimaginable suffering inflicted as a result of it. Anything that uh, that you would point people to for understanding the uh, prophetic significance of what we see over here? Yes, there's a there's a Bible passage that trumpet editor in chief Gerald Flurry points to quite often when he talks about Russia. It's the 38th chapter of Ezekiel, and Mr. Flurry places this in the context of other Bible prophecies about an alliance of Asian nations that will emerge in the modern era. And he says that this passage in Ezekiel shows that one specific Russian man will be the primary kind of czar over this Asian alliance, and that that man will be Vladimir Putin. And he has a booklet all about this. It's called The Prophesied Prince of Russia. It goes into all of the various passages showing just how devastating this Putin-led war machine will be. And, and I think that shows us just how important it is to keep on watching Putin's war on Ukraine. And it shows us that he's not going anywhere. He'll be sticking around. And soon his wars will be even far more violent than this one. Thank you very much, Mr. Jacques. Turkey and Syria are technically at war, but this week, high-level talks between these two countries for the first time in over a decade. To learn about this, we'll go back to Mihailo Zekic. So, 
as was just mentioned, Ukraine is going through a war right now. That's the war that's on everybody's mind. That's the refugee crisis that's that re- that's on everybody's mind. But perhaps it's easy for everybody to forget that there's another war that just a few years ago was capturing everybody's attention just as much as Ukraine is now happening just to the south of where all the action is now. That's, of course, the, the Syrian civil war, the, uh, the violence and the tension that was going on there isn't uh, as extreme, say, as it was a few years back, but the war is still going on. And on December 20, 28th, an interesting turn in the in the war happened. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, Turkey and Syria sent uh, representatives to meet with each other. Uh, this is the first time they've at least publicly met or high, have had high-level talks with each other since the war started in 2011. They met in Moscow. According to the Turkish Defense Ministry, they discussed, of course, the the war, the refugee crisis, and, quote, efforts for a joint struggle against all terrorist organizations on Syrian soil, end quote. Meanwhile, the Syrian state news said that the two sides agreed for the need for the continuation of dialogue. Now, Syria and Turkey, as you mentioned, are technically still at war with each other. Turkey literally has troops stationed in Syria— backing a rival government to that of Syria's President Bashar Assad. Now, Turkey's main aims in Syria are, at this point, uh, going after Kurdish groups, because Turkey has a problem uh, with Kurdish separatists. Syria has a lot of Kurds, some affiliated groups. So the aim for Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan at this point may not necessarily be to remove Bashar Assad, but technically, again, they're still at war. And... At this point, while a few years back it looked like that Assad might be ousted in the revolution, might be ousted through Western uh, uh, intervention, which Turkey as a NATO member contributed to that, it looks like at this point uh, Erdogan is accepting that uh, Assad is going to stay in power. In fact, he said so much that uh, he's not that concerned if Assad stays in power. He told journalists that in August. So... Whereas the war in Ukraine looks like this might not be an end in sight. People don't know how it's going to end. We're actually starting to see Syria, the the conflict there, die down. And two of the uh, fighting countries in the war actually start talking with each other in apparently good faith. Seeing Assad manage to hold on to power over this past, what, 11 years since the uh, 12 years since the Syrian uh, civil war began has been quite extraordinary. And now it does seem like he's weathered the worst of the storms. And the fact that you have Turkey reaching out uh, is is significant. And Turkey isn't the only one who's reaching out to him. Not at all. Um, one of the countries that's actually most reaching out to Syria is the United Arab Emirates, which is interesting because the United Arab Emirates is considered one of America's closest allies in the Arab world. And they're actually spearheading uh, these uh, opening negotiations with the Syrians. In the 2020 Dubai Expo, for example, uh, the Syrian pavilion in the expo was actually the site of a lot of meetings between Syrian officials and Emirati officials. For example, uh, one of the meetings was where the eco- economy ministers of both countries actually came together and signed a trade agreement. And the Emirati trade minister actually tweeted that the UAE is Syria's most prominent trade partner. Now, again, this is a country that's supposedly firmly in the Western camp. 
and as far as Arab states go, is not nearly as radical as uh, some of the other governments, is normally considered a friend with the West. And it's reaching out and extending these olive branches to Syria, which is one of the most anti-Western Arab governments. And on March 19th, Assad actually made a surprise visit to uh, the Emirates to meet with its ruler, Mohammed bin Zayed al-Nahyan. And that's actually the first uh, his first visit to an Arab state since the civil war started. Not to uh, Saudi Arabia, not to Iraq, not to maybe uh, some of these other countries that get into the news more, but the United Arab Emirates. And uh, the Emirates aren't the only Arab country to start opening up as well, the moderate Arabs, I should say. Last year, Bahrain appointed its first ambassador to Syria in years. Uh, Last year also, Jordan reopened its main border crossing with Syria, even though there's a war going on there. So we're seeing countries like these, like Turkey, countries that are normally considered part of the moderate Muslim world, start to reach out to Bashar Assad a few years ago that would have been unthinkable when he was launching chemical weapons on his own people. Uh, Assad Mm -hmm. was when the big siege of Aleppo was happening and the humanitarian disaster when millions of uh, Syrian refugees were crossing into Turkey and Turkey didn't know what to do with them. But now uh, we're all of a sudden seeing a rapprochement between Turkey, some of these Gulf states, some other countries, and Assad Syria which I don't think anybody ever expected the war to turn this way. Right. But that does look like the way this direction is going. And if trends continue, we may actually even see Assad's regime normalized among the modern Muslim states. Yeah, that's that's quite extraordinary. You think back to where Syria was 11 years ago when this war started, and uh, we we considered it a very strong ally of Iran, or certainly that was uh, what it appeared to be. And we've been talking about, based on Bible prophecy, uh, a split between Iran and Syria for years. Uh, I think, I I, I guess uh, in my own mind, uh, when all of that pressure was coming down on on, uh, Assad, it looked like this would happen, this rift between Iran and Syria would, would take place by having him removed and some kind of a changeover in the government. The fact that this is developing the way that it is, is quite extraordinary. Oh, I would agree. Um, There is one big misconception that a lot of people have when they see Syria and Iran, they assume they're like uh, as close to each other as could be. The two countries are technically very different ideologically. Iran is a radical Islamist regime. They have Sharia law, uh, for example. Um, Syria, on paper at least, is a socialist country. It's more in line with the old school, like Nasser's Egypt, Qaddafi's Libya type of government. So the two aren't don't necessarily see each other eye to eye ideologically. And as you mentioned, Assad is an ally of Iran. Iran has troops in Syria fighting for the Syrian government. But just because they're fighting for the Syrian government, it doesn't mean that they're not uh, imposing their influence to the expense of the Assad regime themselves. For example, there are reports of the Iranians converting Sunni mosques to Shiite mosques um, in Syria. And there's even stories of them taking over the administration of schools, apparently without Assad giving the green light for that. So Hmm. if I were Assad, I'd be looking at that and thinking, okay, these guys are my friends, but how much are they helping me because 
they support what I'm doing. And instead of, say, trying to expand their own influence and their own ideology and their own grip on the country. And well, you wonder like uh, how much the, uh, the these warming relations between these uh, these other Arab states uh, and Syria would influence relations between Syria and Iran going forward. And the reason why it's so significant is uh, we we haven't mentioned it explicitly, but the the prophecy in Psalm eighty three specifically lumps Syria in with these moderate states, including Turkey. Yes. So oftentimes when looking at the Middle East prophetically, we use Daniel 11, as was mentioned in Psalm 83, as companions. It, uh, Daniel 11 shows that Iran and its allies will be against the king of the north or Europe. Psalm 83 shows which countries will be allied with Europe, and it has a list of different countries. It talks about Edom, which is are the, ance- the ancestor of Turkey, um, the Ishmaelites, the ancestors of Arabs, including the Gulf states, the UAE, the ancestors of Jordan, and specifically the Hagarenes, which are the ancestors of Syria. Now, as you mentioned, um, Assad's been in power for a long time. People thought he would have been gone right now. He's a pretty slippery character. He's managed to survive the civil war, and he, at this point, if he, he knows that if he ends up in Europe at this point, he's going to end up in The Hague in some sort of war crimes tribunal. And his main goal for the war is just to preserve his regime, to make sure he doesn't end up behind bars and to get stability back. Iran's main interest is exporting its Islamic revolution. And so with how slippery Assad has been, we don't know for sure if this is how prophecy is going to unfold. There are many different avenues this could go. Assad could, of course, leave in Syria, become on paper democracy, join Europe. But uh, given Assad's precarious situation and how much he wants to survive his regime, if the moderate Arabs or if Europe put out an olive branch, some sort of deal, hey, make some uh, concessions here and we'll keep you in power. You're not going to end up in The Hague. I, uh, I would suspect he'd probably jump at that opportunity because at this point, if Europe and the moderate Arabs turned around, that would ensure his survival, his political survival, way more than anything Iran could ever offer. Hmm. Well, it's a fascinating uh, development over there. Uh, we do have a, a couple of articles that we'll link to on the show notes, including a, a short one by uh, Mr. Zekic about uh, this these talks between Turkey and Syria. Uh, we'll also link to a, an older article from Gerald Flurry, How the Syrian Crisis Will End. Thank you for that, Mr. Zekic. One final story, we could say that Americans who are concerned about illegal immigration had a bit of a cause for celebration this week. For this, we'll go back to Andrew Miller. Yeah, on Tuesday, the Supreme Court voted 5-4 to keep Title 42 in place just two days before it was set to expire. So now for a little background on uh, what Title 42 is, if if you'll remember back in the Obama years, uh, the U.S. government had a, a program that we usually call catch and release where if an illegal immigrant came here uh, and applied for asylum, you'd just release them into the population with instructions to come back on such and such court date to figure out if you can stay or not. And many of them just never showed up for that court date. They just disappeared into the system. So when COVID started, Trump, Trump put, uh, Donald Trump put Title 42 in place, which basically said that because of the risk of infection, illegal immigrants can be deported back to Mexico uh, and wait for their court date there. They don't have to wait here. Now, uh, Biden didn't like that 
uh, <laughs> that Title 42 thing Trump put in place and was hoping to get rid of it. And so it was up for expiration. Uh, the uh, Republicans were going to try to get it renewed in Congress, but then caved during the budget negotiations. Uh, so eventually the Supreme Court came in and said they, since Congress didn't pass a new Title 42, said that the old Title 42 is still valid because the um, the lower court ruling that struck down the initial Title 42 said that it's no longer relevant because the COVID pandemic's over. Uh, but yet in other parts of the government, they've actually extended uh, some of their COVID national emergency programs through April 2023. Uh, and so the the Supreme Court basically just pointed out the logical contradiction. It's like, well, you you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you're going to keep doing COVID emergency, mm-hmm. probably even for everything else, you have to keep the Title 42 in place until you've done away with all the emergency measures. Which means that we uh, we do still get to keep it till um, till probably at least April, which will discourage some illegal immigration because a lot of illegal immigrants were lining up at the border waiting for that. Title 42 to expire so they could come here, apply for asylum and disappear into the system. Now, uh, now that can will be kicked down the road several months. Well, there's still a whole lot more that needs to be done to stem the tide of illegal immigration into the United States. Uh, But on this story, we have uh, an article up on the website by Rufaro Manjepa that went up yesterday and he just talks about the the makeup, the composition, the uh, the ideological orientation of this Supreme Court. Actually, uh, this might be one way that we see um, how this could play into future events even more significantly than this. Right, because there's a, the prophecy in Amos seven thirteen that's about uh, an end time Jeroboam uh, in uh, in America where it talks about him being supported by two organizations, uh, one called the King's Chapel and the other called the Kingdom's Court. Uh, now that Kingdom's Court is like, has to do with the Supreme Court. We have a, uh, an article linked to in uh, Rufaro's article by our editor-in-chief titled Is America's Supreme Court and Bible Prophecy that goes into that quite a bit deeper, that talking about like an ideological alignment between the American Supreme Court and Donald Trump, the Jeroboam figure. And so uh, this thing, this is the Supreme Court stepping in to support and border security measure that Trump had passed some two years ago. And it does show that um, at least on on border security, the, the Supreme Court is much more in line with Donald Trump's thinking than it is the radical left's thinking. Well, we'll direct you to that article. Uh, Supreme Court upholds Title 42. It's up on the website. We'll link to it in the show notes. Thank you for that, Mr. Miller. I'm Joel Hilliker. That's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Mihailo Zekic, and Richard Palmer. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Fred Astaire. The hardest job kids face today is learning good manners without seeing any. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening.
listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world. 